This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. And if you would care to sign up for our newsletter, go to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll promise you our five best stories of the week. Transcribed if you'd like to read them, and if you'd love to hear the terrific production values that we bring to each and every story, you can listen to them. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter. Send us your email address and we'll give you our five best stories each week. We love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to history and to sports. And we love talking about, well, innovation and engineering. And the Lockheed SR-71, known as the Blackbird, is a long-range Mach 3 strategic reconnaissance aircraft that was operated by the U.S. Air Force from 1964 to 1998. At sustained speeds of more than Mach 3.2, the plane was faster than the Soviet Union's fastest interceptor, the MiG-25, which also could not reach the SR-71's altitude. During its service life, no SR-71 was ever shot down. And now we bring you to Major Brian Schull, U.S. Air Force retired, who relays the true story of a ground speed check while piloting the SR-71 Blackbird over Southern California. It's called the LA Speed Story. And I, it was just a story about one day it was really cool being, being SR-71 pilot. Walter and I were doing a training mission around the United States where you just were building up hours and time. And we take off out of Beale, hit a tanker in Idaho, rip on up to uh, Montana, zip across Denver, hang a right turn in Albuquerque, out over Los Angeles, up to Seattle, back into Sacramento, two hours, 21 minutes. And you just do that for, and you do it backwards, and you hit a tanker. It was just, just to gain crew coordination, get, build your hours. We're on our last training mission. We're over Tucson. I can see downtown LA from Tucson. We're at 89,000 feet. I can see the whole western United States bathed in a warm October fall glow. I can see the chain of Rocky Mountains from Canada to New Mexico. I could, I could just see the most beautiful picture laid at my feet in this air as smooth as glass, not a gauge moving in the cockpit. It was perfect. Now I'm thinking, we bad. <laughs> now I feel sorry for Walter because he has to monitor five radios in the back seat, so I flipped the switch up just to listen. and. L.A. Center is controlling, they control all, when you fly southwest there, the guy's controlling everybody. But we're above controlled airspace. So they have us on their scope, but they're not talking to us. Now there's controllers all over the country, Jacksonville Center, Chicago Center, Seattle Center, you know. It's the same guy. They all talk the same. And it's really cool the way they talk, because they make you feel important as a pilot. They don't just say, yeah, okay, here's your thing. They make you feel really cool. So sure enough, this was pre-GPS days. Some Cessna guy has to know his ground speed. Uh, LA Center Cessna, November Tango Alpha, you got a ground speed readout for us? Now, Center would like to say, who cares? Get off free. <laughs> but no, he'll talk to him like he's John Glenn. Cessna, November Alpha, we show you 90 knots, nine zero knots on the ground. And they do that sing-song, but that's how they talk. And it makes you feel kind of cool. Right after that, a twin bonanza came up to pimp the guy for speed, I guess. And, LA Center, Twin Beach, uh, whatever. You got a ground speed read up for us? And Center likes it. God, it's Friday. Why me? God, please, just get off. But he's going to talk to him like he's Air Force One. Twin Beach, shall we show you 121, two zero knots on the ground? And right after that, 
A Navy F-18 out of Lamar popped up on frequency. And you knew it was a Navy guy because he talked really slick on the radio. <laughs> Center Dusty 5-2 speed check. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Dusty 5-2 has a ground speed indicator and that million dollar F-18 cockpit. It's right there in the heads up display. Why is he calling Center to broadcast his speed? <laughs> I get it. We are just the meanest, baddest, fastest military jet in the valley today. We're taking our little Hornet jet over Mount Whitney and ripping across Death Valley. We want everyone from Fresno to the coast to know what real speed is. And you can almost hear a little, a little glee in the controller's voice like, we have put an end to this. <laughs> Dusty 5-2, we show you 620, 620 knots across the ground. And it was that across the ground. See that little knife like, I hope nobody else has the nerve to get on frequency now. And there wasn't an airliner from Seattle to San Diego that wanted to be next on freak. It's sort of an etiquette thing amongst flyers. And a 12-year-old was reaching for the mic button. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, wait, Walter's in charge of the radios. I flew single seat all those years, but I'm in the family model now. And I, I went, no, it's the Navy that must die and it must die now. And I, and I thought, no, but if I do, I, well, I'll upset Walter and I want us to be a good crew. And I, at that moment... I heard a click with the mic button in the back seat. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Walter and I became a crew at that moment. <laughs> His best innocent voice, LA Center, Aspen 3-0. Have you got a ground speed readout for us? <laughs> you could almost hear a collective gasp on Freak, like all oh, the poor fools didn't hear the previous transmissions. Oh, they, they got crushed like a grape. It's, it's just a pilot thing. But Center had to give you that same voice. Aspen 30, we show you 1,992 knots <laughs> across the ground. When I knew I was going to like Walter a lot is when he came back and said, Center, we're showing a little closer to 2,000. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we did not hear another transmission on that frequency all the way to the coast. The king of speed lived, the Navy had been flamed, and a crew had been formed. For just a moment, it was absolutely fun being the fastest guys on the block. And what a voice. And that is the sound of America's best. The humor. Well, that's what we love to do here on Our American Stories. Bring it direct to you. And that's, well, that's U.S. Air Force retired pilot Brian Schul telling a story and just, well, shooting it a little bit. And we bring it to you here on Our American Stories. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter. And just as important, stories like this, we want to hear them from you. You're in the military, wherever you are, whatever walk of life, musician, teacher, share your story with us. We'll shoot it right back at you here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about music and stories of songs here on this show. And here's Greg Hengler with the stories of three Beatles songs. The identity of the true fifth Beatle has been hotly debated for half a century. But the strongest case can be made for George Martin. The band's trusted and loyal producer, Martin served as expert, mad scientist, friend, and father figure throughout the band's studio life. He shaped their songs in ways that are seldom appreciated, but impossible to forget. Here's the Beatles live at the Cavern Club in 1962 and George Martin. We proudly present the Beatles! I didn't realize when I signed the Beatles that they'd already been to every record company in the country and they'd been turned down by every record company in the country. Here's Ringo Starr. When we first met George, we loved him because he took a chance on us. No one else would take a chance with a name like that. You come from Liverpool, not a chance in hell. I think it was really a gut feeling I had about them. I think it was their charisma. When I first met them, the Beatles knew nothing about a recording studio. Their experience had been performing in front of people at the Cavern and in Hamburg and that kind of thing. Here's John Lennon. George had done uh, no rock and roll when we met him and we'd never been in a studio, so we did a lot of learning together. I think the Beatles would have made it as great musicians, whether I was there or not. I think the fact that I was there helped out. I think we probably got there more quickly. Here's music producers Nigel Godrich, Tony Visconti and Rick Rubin. What happened with George Martin's work with the Beatles is that he added himself into the picture. He was an arranger, he was a musician. He had some technical knowledge that he could use to augment what they were doing and took control of the overall sonic picture. I kept seeing George Martin's name on the records. And then when I saw a picture of him, I thought, my God, he's about twice their age, you know. He looked like he was a, a director in a bank. You know, he had a suit and tie all the time. His hair was swept back. It was like, wow, these people work together. That's, that's crazy. He was older and wiser, and he brought a deep musicality. They had it intuitively, and he had it intellectually. So he could help them execute ideas that uh, a less skilled producer could not, could not do. It wasn't until a couple of years later that they started doing more sophisticated songwriting that I had solo group most touching material. It'll be an F for you. Yesterday. I'm in G, but it'll be an F. It goes... E minor to A seventh to D minor. Ready? When Paul first wrote yesterday, he came to me and said, have you heard this one before? Because I dreamt about it last night, and I'm sure in my subconscious I'm pinching it from someone. I said, no, I'm sure it's an original piece of music. Stick to it. It's great. Okay, man. 
yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay He said, what do you think then? I said, well, there's nothing we can do to put on top of this that's going to make it more beautiful, except perhaps some strings. Here's Giles Martin. With my dad being the posh bloke in the studios, the classically trained musician, there was an initial reluctance from Paul to have a string quartet on yesterday. Here's Paul McCartney. I was always frightened of classical music, and I never wanted to listen to it because it was Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and sort of big words like that, and Schoenberg. You know, you know I always thought, you know, it's high class, that. It's very highbrow. I was rehearsing musicians when he walked into the studio, and he saw the score that I'd written, and he came up to me and said, what's this? I said, it's all the music that the musicians are playing. He said, you haven't got my name on it. I said, I'm sorry, here's a pencil, put your name on it. So I wrote on it, yesterday, by Paul McCartney, John Lennon. Looked at me, George Martin Esquire, and then giggled and put down, and Mozart. Yesterday, love was such an easy game to play. Now I need a place to hide away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Yesterday showed Paul how a string quartet could be quite effective on a really good song. And then he came to me with Eleanor Rigby, which cried out for strings. Not the smooth legato stuff of yesterday, but something was very biting, very rhythmic, very edgy. He suggested to me the stuff that Bernard Herrmann had been writing for Psycho, for example. Elna Rigby is the first time that the Beatles weren't playing any instruments on one of their records. It is just a string octet. The octet was recorded into four track. On track one here, we have the first violins. And here are the second violins. You can hear bleed because they're all in the same room together. Oh my gosh. I played that over and over and over and over again. It was just, just so smart. George Martin obviously knew this stuff and he knew how to put it on a Beatles record. That's, that's the trick. For the first time, you're hearing a string octet and you're tapping your foot. You know, until then, I thought, I can be a rock star. I want to be a rock star. I want to be on stage. I want to have the girls screaming at me. I want all that stuff. I want a limo, everything. But now I wanted to be George Martin. That was more important, to be in the studio, to do that kind of stuff, to be able to experiment that way and to make great works of art that only exist on tape. That's very important, you know, it's a very different art from performing live. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be George Martin. When I walked into Abbey Road Studios for the first time in 1950, I was astonished at how primitive it was. 
They were still recording on discs that were cut by a lathe. From 1950 on, I just worked away, and I had various ideas. I was experimenting with the newfangled tape, and I was able to learn what you could do to manipulate sound. You can cut, you can edit, obviously, you can slow down or speed up your, your tape, you can put in backwards type. And this is the kind of thing you can do on recording, which you obviously couldn't possibly do it live, because it is, in fact, making up music as you go along. Big one, uh, take six. How could I dance? She'll, she won't dance. I'll never dance. When I first met the Beatles, I had so little time with them in the studio, because they were incredibly busy all the time. I would have maybe a day and a half here and a couple of days there. As a result of that, the songs that they produced, which were marvelous, were still fairly basic. The first album only took us 12 hours. I mean, we all knew those songs so well because that was our live show. We were just in there doing the, the gig, really. So Here's music producer Brian Eno. The old approach was that the band rehearsed, went into the studio, stood in front of some microphones and played them. And the job of the producer was maybe to mix them well or put a bit of reverb or echo on them. But essentially, the music wasn't transformed. The Beatles were over that phase by about 1966. With the help of George Martin, they were starting to make music that you couldn't actually play. It couldn't exist outside of a recording studio. It's very difficult to imagine what the Beatles would have sounded like without George Martin. And when we come back, more of this riveting story. If you love music, you're going to want to hear more. George Martin's story, in a way, a producing industries, modern producer story, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We return to this fantastic storytelling about the fifth Beatle, and most people think the crucial Beatle, without whom the Beatles might not have been the same. And Martin is a humble man, but when you hear Rick Rubin talk about, and Rick Rubin may be one of the great American record producers, talk so glowingly about George Martin, believe Rubin. And let's return now to Greg Hengler's story, the rest of this story. When multi-track recording became multi-multi-track recording, more than any other, producer George Martin used this new technology to transform the Beatles. Here's music historian Chuck Granada. What's wonderful about this moment in time is that four-track recording opened up the possibilities to use the studio in the creative palette. So the Beatles 
transition from a garage band group that's standing around the mic, playing and singing, please, please me, and I saw her standing there, into a decisive recording group. start to use technology to create sounds and sonic textures that had never been heard in rock music. The Beatles revolutionized the way that people worked in studios, you know, on rain. It's the first time there's anything backwards on a record, and you could say that, like, from that moment on, it's like all the, the rule books out the window, because you're no longer trying to represent something as it was. You're, you're trying to break it, break your perception of this band, you know, there's this band playing in a room. Here's Ringo Starr. It's more fun in the record if there's a few sounds that you don't really know what they are and really they're just instruments, only something happens on here, you know, I couldn't tell you what because we have a special man who sits here and goes like this and the guitar turns into a piano or something, you know. And then you may say, why don't you use a piano? Because the piano sounds like a guitar. Here's John Lennon. We were all on this ship in the 60s, our generation. We were part of it, and uh, we went somewhere. Here's George Harrison. There was a great upsurge of energy and consciousness. And so there was a lot of excitement on the street. There was a lot of people who were all trying to go on the same trip together. Here's Beatles biographer, Bob Spitz and music producer, Don was. On Revolver, the Beatles wanted to make the music that was going on in their heads. The first song they worked on was a song of John's. It had the mysterious title, Mark One, which of course becomes Tomorrow Never Knows. That's me and my Tibetan Book of the Dead period. I gave it a throwaway title because I was a bit self-conscious about the lyrics of Tomorrow Never Knows, so I took one of Ringo's malapropisms which was like Hard Day's Night. Tomorrow Never Knows, that's a song that pretty vividly depicts what you're hearing in your head when you consume some psychedelics. The Beatles laid that out for everybody to hear. Here's George Martin. Tomorrow Never Knows was a very weird song. The tune had virtually no harmonies. It was based on a continuous drone of sound. Here's George Martin's son, Giles. Tomorrow Never Knows started with a backing track recorded here at Abbey Road Studios. That's Paul on bass and Ringo on drums creating a sort of loopy, mesmeric effect. To this, John added his vocal with George playing tambora. Turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying. Late in the song, 
John's voice gets very unusual sounding, especially at the time it was. John wanted to sound like the Dalai Lama chanting from the top of a mountain. And he suggested that the way that they record that would be to put him in a harness, to hoist him high above the studio, give him a shove, and he'd, he'd sing. Every time he came around, the mic would capture a few beats of it. Here's Tom Petty. Which wasn't the most practical idea. But the engineer, Jeff Emmerich, had the great idea of plugging it into a revolving speaker called Leslie. So when it goes fast, it creates one sound, and when it slows down, it creates another. That you may see the meaning of within. In the early part of the song, John's voice is pretty straightforward. Then, after about one and a half minutes, the Leslie Speaker effect kicks in. Beatles always look for other sounds in their records, and they all had tape machines which they used for recording demos. And they found that by making tape loops, they could create sounds that people had never heard before. One of the most recognizable loops on Tomorrow Never Knows is the sound of what well, sounds like seagulls squawking. It's actually the sound of, uh, I think, Paul laughing um, and speeding himself up, which is this. Another loop is just made up of guitars being recorded over and over again, again sped up and slowed down, turned backwards, and they sound like trumpets. And then, early days of sampling, Paul actually recorded um, an orchestra off a vinyl record and created a chord here. I had a bit of a problem. How were we going to use the collection of sounds? I devised a way of playing five loops at the same time. And if you brought up the faders, it was like bringing up an organ stop. Each one had a different tape loop playing all the time. So you could make your sounds as you wish. And these tape loops were running and running and running. And the Beatles and my dad and Jeff Emmerich performed on the desk. Pushing up faders at the right time in order to create the instrument sounds they wanted for the mix. So the actual mix of Tomorrow Never Knows is a performance. It can't be recreated. Here's music writer Warren Zanes. If you look at everything that's happening in that recording, it's like a prophecy of pop music in one song. With the sampling and the loops, there's so much happening there that will be active for the next four or five decades. Here's Rick Rubin. You can look at hip hop and using samples or scratching in music. The Beatles were doing that and Tomorrow Never Knows. That song makes you rethink what music is. It's that profound. Here's music 
music producer, Tom Visconti. This was the dawn of creating a new kind of magic. This was really fantasy stuff. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. George Martin, the fifth Beatle. By the way, we have an hour on his life. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look up George Martin. This is Lee Habib, the story of a few songs, the story of one of the world's greatest record producers, the fifth Beatle, George Martin. our American stories and we love telling stories about our men and women in uniform on this show and we don't wait for Memorial Day and Veterans Day to do it we do it all year round because the men deserve it and we talk about men present and men and women past who served some who've paid the ultimate price and for this one we turn to General John Kelly he spoke to a group of families who'd lost sons and daughters in service of our nation This was back in 2014. He was then a four-star general. He offered them a glimpse into the on-duty lives of their loved ones. He told the story of the last six seconds of two combat Marines killed in action under his command. Two men who are absolutely extraordinary and absolutely what the Marine Corps expects from each and every member. On the 22nd of April, 2008, two Marine battalions, the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, the walking dead from Vietnam fame, and the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, were switching out in a place called Ramadi, Iraq. One battalion was going home in a few days, and the other just starting its seven-month tour. Two Marines, Corporal Jonathan Yale and Lance Corporal Jordan Herter, 22 and 20 years old, respectively, One from each battalion. They were assuming the watch together at the entrance gate to an outpost that contained a makeshift barracks housing 50 Marines. The same broken down ramshackle building was also home to 100 Iraqi police who were our allies. They were my men in this fight against the terrorists in Ramadi. Yale was a dirt poor mixed race kid from Virginia with a wife and a daughter and a mother and a sister who lived with him, and he supported them as well, on $13,000 a year. Herder was a middle-class white kid from Long Island. The two of them were from two completely different worlds in our country. Not good, not bad, just different. Had they not joined the Marine Corps, they would never have known each other. They would never have even understood that multiple Americas exist simultaneously, depending on your education level, your family's income status maybe. But they were Marines, they were combat Marines, 
And because of this bond, they were brothers as close as if they were born to the same woman. The mission orders they received from the sergeant, their squad leader, I'm sure, went something like this. Okay, you two clowns, stand this post and let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. You clear on that? And I'm sure Yale and Herder then rolled their eyes and said in unison something like, yes, yeah, Sergeant, we got it. We know what we're doing. Screw you. <laughs> Again, I'm prior enlisted. I know how they think. <laughs> they then relieved two other Marines on watch, who, as it turned out, were probably the two luckiest Marines on the earth that day. And they assumed those posts, Yale and Herder. A few minutes later, a very large blue truck turned down the alleyway that was no more than 100 yards in length. It sped its way through the serpentine concrete walls, Jersey walls. The truck then stopped just short of where these two were posted. It detonated. It killed both of them catastrophically. And if you know what combat's like, you know what I'm talking about when I say catastrophically. 24 brick masonry houses were damaged or destroyed by the blast. A mosque 100 meters away collapsed. The truck's engine came to rest 200 meters away, and it knocked down a building before it came to rest. Their explosive guys reckoned that the blast was made by a bomb of at least 2,000 pounds of explosive. Two died, and because these two young infantrymen died, they didn't know how to run from danger. 150 men, 50 U.S. Marines and 100 Iraqis were saved. When I read the situation report, a few hours after it happened, I called the regimental commander, Luke Craparata, and I asked him for details about what happened. It seemed different to me. Unfortunately, Marines dying or being seriously wounded is common in combat. We expect Marines, and for that matter, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and coast guardsmen, regardless of rank, to do their duty, to stand their ground, and to die, if that's what the mission requires. The regimental commander had just returned from the site. He agreed with me, for it reported to me that there were no American witnesses, just Iraqi police. I figured if there was any chance of finding out what actually happened and to recognize these young men for what they'd done, I'd have to go down there myself, because I understood, unfortunately, that the bureaucrats in Washington would never accept Iraqi statements for what had taken place. If there was any chance at all, it had to come under my signature. So I traveled to Ramadi the next day and spoke to half a dozen Iraqi police, all of whom told me the same story. They said the truck turned down into the alley and sped up as it made its way through the serpentine Jersey walls. They all said they knew immediately what was going on, particularly when the Marines began to fire. The Iraqis all began firing as well, then to a man ran for safety just prior to the explosion. They all survived. Many were injured, some seriously injured. But as one of the Iraqis said to me, sir, they'd run from the danger like any normal man would to save his life. What he didn't know until then, he said, and what he learned at that instant, was that Americans are not normal. With tears welling up, he said to me, Sir, in the name of Allah, no sane man would have stood there and done what they did. No sane man. They saved all of us.
What we didn't know at the time, what I didn't know at the time, and only learned a couple of days later, after I wrote a summary of statement of, these, of this bravery and submitted both Yale and Herder for Navy Crosses, which is the number two award for Marines and sailors in combat. What I didn't know was that one of the security cameras we had at the location that was damaged initially in the blast had caught everything. It happened exactly as these Iraqis described it to me. It took exactly six seconds by that recording from when the truck entered the valley until it exploded. Six seconds. And you can watch, and I did watch many, many times on this recording, the last six seconds of their lives. When it first started, I suppose it took about a second or so for the Marines to separately come to the conclusion about what was going on. They had no time to talk it over, only enough time to take half an instant and think about what the sergeant maybe had told them a few minutes before, let no unauthorized persons or vehicles to pass. At that point, I think, according to the recording, the Marines had about five seconds to live. Think of it, five seconds to live. I don't think they knew it. They didn't have time. It took about another two seconds for the two jarheads to raise their weapons, to take aim, and to open up at that truck. By this time, the truck was halfway through the barriers and gaining speed the whole time. Here, the recording shows a number of Iraqi policemen, some of whom had fired their AK-47s, were now scattering like the normal and rational men they were, some running right past the Marines. The two Marines had about three seconds to live. For about two seconds more, the recording shows the Marines firing their weapons nonstop. The truck's windshield exploded into shards of glass as their rounds took it apart and undoubtedly tore into the body of the terrorist that was trying to kill their brothers. Unaware of the danger at the time, the Marines and Iraqi soldiers could take comfort in the fact if they'd have known that two Marines were on watch and would die before they ran. The truck careens to a stop immediately in front of the two Marines. In all of this instantaneous violence, Yale and Herder never hesitated. They never stepped back. They never even started to step back. They never shifted their weight. With their feet spread shoulder-width apart, they leaned into the fire and fired as fast as they could. They had only, at this point, one second to live. And then the truck explodes, the camera goes blank, and the two young men go to their God. Six seconds. Not enough time to think about their country or their flag or about their lives or their deaths, but more than enough time for two very brave young men like your sons and daughters, like your brothers and sisters, like your spouses two very brave young men to do their duty for eternity. That is the kind of people who are on watch for us all over the world tonight. That is the kind of young men and women that came from your families. And for those of you tonight and all of the families who have lost the light of their lives, they can say to every American, 
that it was my boy or it was my girl who stood their post and did their duty <clears throat> into eternity. Corporal Jonathan Yale's story, Lance Corporal Jordan Herter's, and that's General John Kelly. Their last six seconds revealed everything about their character and the Marine Corps. Our American stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the sports world to the arts world, from business, because my goodness, where will we be without inventors and innovators in American business, and straight down to faith leaders. And this is our very first story about, well, buildings and the spaces we live in and inhabit. And we bring you the story of a man who single-handedly changed the way America and the world looks at architecture. Here's Jesse Edwards with the story. Most Americans are at least somewhat familiar with the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright. Even if by some chance you don't know his name, you've seen and probably admired his work on a calendar or in a magazine. Born in 1867, he designed over a thousand structures, 532 of which were completed. Wright believed in designing structures that were in harmony with humanity and its environment, a philosophy he called organic architecture. He was recorded in 1956 at the Plaza Hotel in New York City where he talked about his philosophies on architecture, society, culture, education, and music. He was well known for being outspoken, bombastic, a master of publicity, highly opinionated, and ruggedly individualistic a magnificently flawed and complex character. His father was a music teacher and a Baptist minister. My father taught me. He was a preacher, but he was first of all a musician and made his living, or tried to, teaching music later on. He never was able to support us by way of it, and his life was a kind of tragedy. But he taught me that a symphony was an edifice of sound, and that it was built. And I learned pretty soon that it was built by the same kind of mind in much the same way that a building is built. And when that came to me, I used to sit and listen to the only master that was immaculate in my, my listening was Beethoven. He was a great architect. And he had a great disciple, and his greatest disciple was Brahms. Brahms was a true disciple, such as any uh, man could be proud to have. If I had in architecture a disciple such as Brahms was, where Beethoven was concerned, I should be extremely happy. Frank Lloyd Wright never took on any disciples, and his father left him when he was 14 years old. He attended high school in Madison, Wisconsin, but there's no evidence of his graduation. He was admitted to the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a special student in 1886, but he left without a degree. In 1887, Wright went to Chicago looking for work after the Great Chicago Fire, where he was hired as a draftsman. 
On June 1st of 1889, Frank Lloyd Wright marries his first wife, Catherine, and by 1893, now in his mid-20s, opens his own practice and begins planning. The thing comes to life in a plan because you can't make a plan without a sense of what the plan is for. And I think a plan is always beautiful, perhaps more beautiful than anything that ever comes afterward. Plan, the idea, is the plan. The plan contains the idea. Now, the house is an idea, if it's a good house. And that idea embraces all that composes, or will compose, the uh, usefulness and beauty of that house. It's right there in the plan. By 1901, Wright had completed about 50 projects, including many houses in Oak Park, Illinois. Four of those houses have been identified as the onset of the prairie style of architecture. Horizontal lines, flat roofs with broad overhanging eaves, windows grouped in horizontal bands, integration with the landscape, solid construction, craftsmanship, and a discipline in the use of ornament. Frank Lloyd Wright promoted an idea of organic architecture, the primary tenet of which was that a structure should look as if it naturally grew from the site. It's all a nature study, the building of a house. And when you proceed from generals to particulars, as you do when you are building, that's your natural gut, natural center line of your effort would be the, what is the natural thing? What is the nature of your materials? Even the nature of your client? The nature of the situation on which the house is built? Nature of the climate? And I suppose it would be the same in, in a great composition like Beethoven's Irwaka when he was celebrating the heroism of Napoleon and then toward the end of his effort began to feel that Napoleon, after all, was dead so far as his ideal was concerned, and a great sense of tragedy overcame him, and you feel it in the music. It's a great story, a great revelation of a man's worship and disillusionment. Frank Lloyd Wright's prairie houses also featured open floor plans, a prominent central chimney, built-in stylized cabinetry, and a wide use of natural materials, especially stone and wood. He was meticulous when choosing what materials he would use to build with. Well, those that are native, of course, are best, most appropriate, and the cheapest, most feasible. If there's stone in the neighborhood, we like to use stone. If there are kills and there's brick, and brick is characteristic, well, fire fire-built houses are good. And old wood is always the friend of man. Don't you feel friendly to a tree when you see one? And if you don't see one, you're hungry for association with trees. Trees and human beings belong together. I don't think one could exist without the other, perhaps. If they could, it would be the tree that would survive. <laughs> When we return, the architecture, life, and philosophy of the greatest American architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, in his own words, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of America's greatest architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, and what we try to do on this show, well, you're hearing it, anytime we get a chance, you get to hear from the human being, the person himself, and how lucky we are to hear the voice so beautifully and clearly from Frank Lloyd Wright himself. You see, early in life I had to choose between honest arrogance and uh, hypocritical humility. I chose honest arrogance and have seen no occasion to change. After establishing a solid reputation for building houses around the turn of the century, Frank Lloyd Wright left his wife and ran off with one of his clients' wives, Martha Borthwick. This was such a public spectacle at the time that the press hounded them relentlessly. He lost most of his clients and banks stopped loaning him money. To avoid scrutiny, Frank and Martha escaped to Europe for two years. Once public outcry had calmed, they returned to the United States and built Taliesin, the 600-acre estate near the village of Spring Green, Wisconsin. On August 15, 1914, while Wright was working in Chicago, a disgruntled servant set fire to the living quarters at Taliesin and murdered seven people with an axe as they fled from the burning structure. The dead included his mistress, Martha, and her two children. This marked the end of Frank Lloyd Wright's career for nearly 20 years. His first wife, Catherine, granted him a divorce in 1922 with the stipulation that Wright could not marry his latest lover, Maud Noel. They were married in 1923, but her addiction to morphine led to the failure of that marriage less than a year later. Wright would marry his third wife, Olga, in 1925. It would be another 10 years before Frank Lloyd Wright would make his triumphant comeback as the public forgot or forgave his transgressions. Falling Water is an extraordinary house designed in 1935 by Frank Lloyd Wright, built on top of a 30-foot waterfall. It is by far his most popular building and best exemplifies his philosophy of organic architecture, the harmonious union of art and nature. Located in the mountains of southwestern Pennsylvania, roughly 70 miles outside of Pittsburgh, it's listed among Smithsonian's life list of 28 places to visit before you die. The house was meant to complement its site while still competing with the drama of the falls and their endless sounds of crashing water. The power of the falls is always felt, not visually, but through sound, as the breaking water is constantly heard throughout the entire house. 30 million people must have seen falling water by now. But it was a very simple expression of uh, a man's love for that particular site, the music of the waterfall. And never before had I been given concrete and steel to build a building with. You see, when steel comes into your hand, you can pull on the building and you have what's called a cantilever. Now, the cantilever is this principle of tension. Your arm reaching out from your body and held by the sinews and muscles above, moving as you wish to move it as a cantilever. The trunk, of course, is a support that's in compression. But you can suspend from the end of the cantilever fabrications of any kind. So the new principle in architecture is this principle of the interior support the extended slab, the arm, and the falling screen hanging to the slab. Now that's the structural synthesis of my own building. 
and it is essentially organic in itself. And that is falling water in principle. And the grammar of falling water, now we call the grammar of the building, the shapely means you use to, to uh, make the building manifest. Falling water is an architectural marvel, but it has a few major flaws. Its skylights leak, the waterfall promotes mold growth, and the builders didn't use enough reinforcing steel to support the first floor's concrete skeleton. Despite its flaws, falling water is a masterful work of art. The considerations that Wright would take into account before crafting such a milestone of architecture went far beyond the basic materials used to build a house. The nature of the site, like falling water, and next, the nature of the materials you have to use and the people you're going to work for, and what it is they want to live in, and you have to have an eye on what they want to live for, too. I can't see any future in anything but an individual type of architecture. If the Declaration of Independence in America means anything, and democratic life means anything, that's practically what it means. You see, I was Italius in my uh, country home, lying on the bench, the Dutch door half closed below. Great curiosity existed, it was during a tragedy at Taliesin, and people came in droves to look around, and two women ranged up on a Sunday morning, looked all around into the living room, and old and odd, and how uh, beautiful this was, and how that was so interesting, and a pause. Finally, one of them said to the other, well, I wonder if I'd like living in a place like this as much as I'd like living in a regular home. Well, now that's the way it all began. They were, these things were strange. They weren't accustomed. They were accustomed to stuffiness and uh, a messy environment and things never going together, making a kind of commotion. And they didn't understand it and didn't want to understand it. They put it on like some old garment when they built a house without thinking. But now comes the uh, necessity for not just taste, but some knowledge. You have to know now, a little better and a little further along, what constitutes good proportion, harmony in building, great and beautiful environment. And it's a culture and a growth in itself of the soul. So the people who live in these advanced houses, I think that's what we can call them, must have a greater feeling for life. They must be more in themselves than the people who haven't arrived at that stage in their development. And once they have arrived there, they are liberated, they feel, and they see so much more than they never saw before. They see the uh, lineaments of nature, and as Blake would put it, uh, the lineaments of gratified desire. The original estimated cost for building falling water was $35,000, but the total was closer to $155,000, approximately $2.7 million adjusted for inflation. The cost of restoring the house in 2001 was $11.5 million. Frank Lloyd Wright believed that his architecture and design had the ability to fundamentally change the lives of the people who lived in his buildings, and eventually would change the way society lived in harmony with nature. 
Good architecture creates good behavior. I believe now people are going to know what constitutes good architecture, good environment, and of course good living has to go with it. Good dressing too. Good conduct also. All these good things are dependent more or less one on the other and are assisting one another more or less. Because you wouldn't dress in a loud and vulgar way in a quiet and beautiful room. Nor would you be so satisfied with tawdry jazz, perhaps, in a room that was beautifully conceived and had a lovely atmosphere and belonged where it was. It would seem more than ever discordant. So these things all match up as you go along and add up to something that we call culture. Isn't that it? That's what culture means. Wright believed that good architecture created good behavior, which would inevitably lead to a better culture. But this idea clashed with the status quo of his time, and to this day, that education creates the culture. Book smarts versus street smarts. Now, culture and education are two very different things as we practice them. Culture is the developing of the thing by way of itself. And education is informing, teaching, telling, pushing around the individual. So it's only by a natural growth that you can attain culture. But you can come back from a school all filled with, with stuffed with ideas and what we call conditioned instead of enlightened. Isn't that so? So education today doesn't mean culture. And today I think all these youngsters are educated far beyond their capacity and not cultured at all. So I say that education today is not even on speaking terms of what we should call culture. And we need culture more and education less. When we return, Frank Lloyd Wright, the rugged individualist, digs deeper into the clash between culture and education, quality over quantity, and his contempt of standardization. Right here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to the life of Frank Lloyd Wright. And when we left off, Wright was making the distinction between culture and education. And by the way, does this still resonate today, folks? You bet you it does. You're all nodding as you're listening to him talk. Here's Jesse. Wright inspired and continues to inspire generations of young and upcoming architects through not just his works, but his ability to think and design in ways that weren't being taught in institutions of higher learning. How is originality cultivated when everyone is being taught to think the same way? I think all these young people in school now are hungry for something that they don't get or they wouldn't write to me. And I think also that... It's an instinct. 
of the higher nature. You see, you're only human as you rise above the animal. Your animal self is one fundamental factor or element in your life. Then when you come into the higher things that are not animal, the things of the spirit, then you get into this realm that we call art, and you begin to look for things that are creative rather than just uh, repetitive. And I think there's where you're in the realm of culture rather than education, because you can educate an animal. You've seen them do tricks, haven't you? Frank Lloyd Wright was outspoken, to say the least, about his disdain for the ever-increasing collectivist mentality that was rising in American culture during his lifetime. Standardization was not compatible with architecture or any other form of art as far as he was concerned. It was the individual, not the masses, which was the foundation for the American way of life. It's got to be an individual affair. It's got to be a slow affair. It's got to be a peculiar to you affair. Now, how are you going to do it with 20,000 students in a university? How are you going to do it with high schools crammed two stories, three stories high with a crowd of students? As a matter of fact, culture is not for the herd. Culture is not for the crowd. Culture is an individual thing. And that's what our forefathers struck when they decided, and when they declared, I mean, that that, uh, the individual is sovereign. The sovereignty of the individual. Now, that means a certain premium on aloneness to start with. A certain uh, rejection of the common man as common. But insisting on his privilege to be uncommon. And so that exists in every human soul today. And this is the country that we live in that declares it the only one that has made it official, the only one that has made it constitutional to be yourself. (laughs) And we see abuses of it, of course, all down the line now. We uh, We see ourselves all drifting back again drifting toward the commonplace, drifting toward the common man. And you hear it asserted that uh, that was what our country meant, that the common man was free to be common. Well, he wasn't. He was free to become uncommon. And that's the freedom that we ought to tote and talk about. And we should resent with all our strength this drift toward equalitarianism, which is commonness raised to the end power. Wright was raging against the machine age, the era roughly between 1880 and 1945 that ran parallel with his own time on Earth. Life was getting faster. The steam engine was replaced with internal combustion and electric motors. Mass production of high-volume goods on assembly lines, including the automobile, were making life easier for average people. Radio and phonograph technology was making the world smaller as communication was being broadcast and distributed to the masses. Fast, long-distance travel by car, train, and aircraft was now attainable for nearly everyone. But this all came at a cost, according to Frank Lloyd Wright. 
The machine age could be used to create a new kind of beauty and higher way of living, or it could be exploited to create a cookie-cutter culture that would become detrimental to the individual. It's taken me all these years to learn that standardization is no bar to beauty. And the standardization can be controlled and the machine used as a tool to develop a beauty greater and more beneficent, more pervading, more all-embracing than anything we ever knew before. So that's what this age means. That's what the machine age should mean. But it's being exploited and uh, turned inside out, turned over wrong side up by all these opportunists and this desire for material uh, benefits and success. Same old story. There's nothing new in it. It's just as it always has been. It's only when it is conquered and we're, we're aware of this greater and finer way of life that we're truly Americans in the sense that we have a new country and a new ideal and we have a new, therefore, bound to have a new architecture. A new architecture is what Frank Lloyd Wright brought to the world. His buildings stand as monuments to rugged individualism at a time when standardization and mass production were the name of the game. Nothing represented standardization in architecture to Wright more than what he saw in big cities across the country and the world. In his mind, the future was in country living. Well, a city, of course, is a, is a thing of the past. There was a time during the Middle Ages when it was the only source of culture. There was no way of acquiring this thing we call culture except by direct contact. It isn't so now. It hasn't been so for many years. It wasn't even so when this country was founded, but of course it was more so. But gradually, all the, the development of all these sciences, the gifts of science to us, have made this crowding unnecessary. And it always was, after the Middle Ages, it always was a detriment. Never was any real asset to humanity. And especially when the emphasis now comes on the individual and the growth of the individual unit and the whole process of civilization dependent upon the quality of that individual, especially, we've got to give over this uh, crowd. We've got to get out of the crowd. We've got to be all the crowd there is ourselves in proportion as we desire it. Getting out of the crowd, standing out as an individual, pushing back against standardization, much like our founding fathers, these are the qualities that Wright wanted for himself and for our country. When we return, the life and philosophies of Frank Lloyd Wright continue with architecture as the mother of all art, here on Our American Stories.
hear everything we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for the newsletter, follow us on Facebook, or browse through our archives to hear us whenever and wherever you want, absolutely free. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Our American Stories, and we conclude the story of Frank Lloyd Wright, and what a joy, what a pleasure it is to hear from the man himself, the greatest architect in American history, I think there's no doubt, and it's as if he's speaking to us, as if he's here right now, and by the way, he's talking about things we're still talking about right now, aren't we? And that's what made Frank Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, we've heard him talk about art, architecture, culture, society, education, life itself, here again is Jesse with the last part of this story. American filmmaker and historian Ken Burns saw Frank Lloyd Wright as the greatest American architect of all time. In his documentary in the life of Wright, Burns profiled his personality, egocentric and somewhat aggrandizing, and his talent, which was varied, original, and distinctive in this fascinating view of the architect who was an artist of the new. He is the prototypical American in every way. He's got a second act, which people have been saying we don't have. He, he has a third act. He's also the greatest American architect, without a doubt. His overweening ego notwithstanding, that is true. The legacy of the buildings are great. This roller coaster of a personal life makes the biography so interesting. And in the end, he is asking us not just to live and like his houses the way an artist might want you to like his paintings. He's asking you to rethink what a house is and how we live. Architecture is the most important art because it's working on us all the time. And we don't choose to go to it. It's there with us all the time. It's not like the ballet or the theater or the cinema or television. It's working on us now. And he's the only person I know who every moment of his life insisted that we wake up and that he was going to provide the tangible evidence of how we might rearrange our lives to live better and more organically. But living more organically, at least in Wright's mind, was incompatible with living in the city. He knew that there would always be those who would prefer the hustle of the big cities, but he was also anticipating a revolt that would occur when people awoke to the realization that there's more to life than Fifth Avenue. Some of us will always want to huddle. Some of us will always want to pig pile. Some of us will let us... That'll, that'll segregate the uh, sheep from the goats, so to speak. You can stay and huddle and pig pile if you want to. But when you feel yourself to be an individual and you feel this declaration of our freedom, when you get that into your system, you'll want to go out somewhere where you can be as alone occasionally and be yourself as you want to be and have the benefit of nature. You see, the city now is a divorce from nature. 
It didn't used to be such a divorce from nature as it is now. But now it is a great divorce from nature. And there's no substitute. You see, quality, there used to be a big sign on the roadsides. I used to say it, it was advertising a patent medicine, I think. So quality knows no substitute, but nothing truer was ever said. Now quality cannot come from pig fouling and herding and traveling with the herd. There was a major rift between quality and quantity that Frank Lloyd Wright saw as directly influencing American exceptionalism. He also saw art and architecture as a way to retain the fundamentals of the human spirit that's necessary for a healthy culture. Quality is not compatible with quantity. Quantity can never be quality. No matter what the quantity is, there will always be in it the rising within of quality, see. And that is culture, and that is our country. That's what we've declared, that it should give this so-called common man a break equal to any other man's break, what was good in him. And the faith of democracy is that that every man is good if he has a chance to be. He will be. Now, architecture gratifies that sense of the future, the uplift, the becoming. And of course, all art should, more or less does. But architecture primarily is the basis of that. And from it, you get your painters and you get your sculptors and you get your crafts people, all desiring to make something suitable, fitting, uh, calculated to make human life happier. Gadgetry is intended to make it easier and does. <laughs> but without these other things of the spirit, these mechanical things, which we have so many of now and so much of, that has given us a facility we don't know what to do with. All we can do now is to rush from here to there with some idea that we want to go somewhere. We want to go now. But what we get out of going isn't what's so important as it ought to be. It's statements like these that led some to believe at the time that Frank Lloyd Wright was some sort of disestablishmentarianist who simply wanted nothing more than to destroy the new way of living that the machine age had brought to society. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. As Wright saw it, science wasn't the answer to the pitfalls of society, but it could be used as the means to improve our culture if used properly. I think science has far outrun our capacity to take its gifts and use them with a proper profit to ourselves. I think science has now reached a point where we're on the brink by way of it. And we can destroy ourselves by one false step. Because science gave us things that we weren't yet ready to use. We didn't know how to use them properly. We don't know how to use speed. We don't know how to use uh, so many of the things science has given us yet. And the fact that we're crowding in cities shows it. Proves that we haven't learned anything that we haven't really profited by what science has done. 
Science destroyed the city. Science has given us the basis for an organic architecture. It's science now that builds the building, and we call organic. But science as a tool, not as a master. Wright was both cynical and optimistic about the future as he saw it when this audio was recorded in 1956. That year, Elvis had entered the music charts for the first time with Heartbreak Hotel. Schools were desegregating. General Electric released the first alarm clock. President Eisenhower signed the Federal Aid Highway Act, creating the nation's freeway system. The first U-2 spy plane flew over the Soviet Union. The computer was invented by IBM. And the transatlantic telephone cable went online. Things are always either getting better or worse. They never stand still. Now, of course, I see great evidences in, in architecture. While much of it and most of it is imitative and not uh, really creative, still it's better than what we used to have. Still there is an improvement all down the line. There is a raising of standard, I think, in the country. And I believe that we're on the way to a culture of our own. I think we're going to have it. And I don't think I'd be alive here today. I wouldn't have the uh, work I have at my time of life unless that was there. I think that perhaps I today am one of the best proofs you could have of the fact that we're going to have it. Otherwise, they'd have chucked me out long ago. Frank Lloyd Wright died on April 4, 1959, after suffering from abdominal pain and complications from intestinal surgery at 91 years of age. But he continued designing and building his works of art up until his final breath. With over 1,000 structural designs, 532 of which were completed, he left behind a legacy that has inspired and will continue to inspire artists, architects, freethinkers, and rugged individualists alike for generations to come. In a world where standardization reigns supreme, Frank Lloyd Wright bucked the trend, threw caution to the wind, and unbashedly defied the logic and opinions of everyone else around him. He was the American spirit personified and remains a testament to the potential that lies in every person who dares to leave the herd mentality behind. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. It isn't up to us really to do anything except what we believe in ourselves. To be ourselves is the great privilege conferred upon us now. Of course, uh, without conscience, we can't belong to a society. If we were without conscience and we had a the idea of freedom that seems to activate most of these people, we'd land in jail very soon. So conscience and freedom are inalienable companions. One is because of the other. Should be. And if it isn't, we're not going to be a success as a nation. And we're not going to have an architecture, we're not going to have anything. We'll crawl. We'll go back to the slam, I guess. And there you have it. Great job as always, Jesse. And if you like what you heard, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and hear more. And by the way, send us, if you can, your best stories. We'll put them up on air. 
They're not all Frank Lloyd Wright. Some of them are about you and the remarkable things and beautiful things you do in your life. OurAmericanNetwork.org Frank Lloyd Wright's story, a uniquely American story, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 